And now a story from the archives. There are two coffee shops that are more important to me than any other caffeine concoction room in the world, both for a very similar reason. And the reason why I love these coffee shops has everything to do with why others would love your work or mine, or maybe why people don't. The first is called Bourbon Coffee. It's located in Porter Square, an area just north of Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the area I called home a couple years ago. It's technically on the campus of a smaller school called Leslie University, one of the 17 bazillion colleges here in the Boston area where I still live. In 2016, three or four times a week, I would wake up around 6.30, shove my laptop in my bag, and march the 10 or so minutes down the street to Bourbon Coffee. I'd be one of the first to arrive, get the same drink, sit in the same seat, take out my laptop, and write this very show that you're hearing right now. The first several episodes of Unthinkable hatched and took their first wobbly steps and flapped around awkwardly in the world in the early morning light at Bourbon Coffee. The second very important coffee shop in my life is called Queen's Room. It's in Queens, New York. Although I never did learn where they got the name, pause, I eventually learned every square inch of that place, as it's there for about six months that I wrote the manuscript for my first book, Break the Wheel. I'd be one of the first to arrive there, too. I'd get the same drink, sit in the same seat, or, I mean, I'd try. It was New York, so there were way more humans that were likely to be there versus a shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and more likely to take my preferred seat compared to back at Bourbon Coffee. But still, I'd find a seat, take out my laptop, and write that book. The first book of what I hope is many in my career. It's there in that coffee shop that the book wriggled free from my fingertips and onto the screen, learned to swim, and then headed out to the publisher, then on to the vast sea of books. I love Queen's Room. I love bourbon coffee. Or, I did love bourbon coffee. See, it it, it closed. Stupid pandemic. The thing is, when I found out it closed, I felt this pang in my gut, almost like I'd lost an old friend or even a loved one. That coffee shop is forever a part of my story. It's caught up in my identity, just like writing is, just like this show is. It felt irreplaceable, which is why it kind of hurt when it was taken away from me. I fully expected to be back there at least once in a while after moving back to Boston in late 2019. We all want our companies and our work to feel that way to our audiences, somehow irreplaceable to others. Things that are irreplaceable are among a choice few things that have tapped into our personal emotional reasons for caring about something. We might even consider them our favorite things. And favorite doesn't mean the biggest or the best in any objective sense. It's much more subjective. It's emotional after all. Favorite means your personal preferred pick for a specific purpose. We spend so much time at work trying to be the biggest or the best the most known, the most visible, the top ranked, when none of those things are actually the goal. The real goal is to do something that others would consider irreplaceable. So valued, so important in the lives of those we serve that they can't imagine losing us or switching to something like us. If we achieve that end, 
we have an unfair advantage in the growth of our companies, our careers, our causes. The love and support of passionate fans. People who pick us, stick with us, and stick up for us against all odds. The goal is to do something they'd actually miss if we closed shop. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go panic search Google because just writing this script made me realize I don't know the fate of Queen's Room during the pandemic. I hope it didn't also shut down. But in the meantime, ask yourself, what might happen if you stopped trying to be the biggest or the best and focused on being their favorite? It's a shift, but it's worth it, I swear. It's unthinkable how creators trust their intuition more than best practices and blueprints. I'm Jay Akunzo. Today, the story of one of my favorite projects ever created in a content marketing capacity. In other words, it was created by a couple of individuals, yeah, but in support of the marketing for their company. The company is called 360 Learning. They sell tools to help you train your employees. It's called a learning management system or LMS. It's a big category of software tools. In fact, according to a review site of other software products called G2, there are more than 180 competitors to 360 Learning in the LMS category, and some of them are far larger than 360 Learning too. But in 2020, they launched a project that began just before the pandemic and signaled a shift in their marketing from focusing on awareness to affinity, purely caring about reach to focusing on deep personal resonance with their audience. The project was a documentary series called Onboarding Joey, and that's spelled J-O-E-I, Onboarding Joey, produced by the company's in-house video producer at the time, Nicholas Merlot, and it followed the real process of a new employee, Joey Chan, joining the company and learning to do her new job as a content marketer and creator. And because they were willing to wade into some really messy, emotional, more personal waters found in the workplace all the time, but not often explored or put on camera, because they were willing to do that stuff in a way that a lot of companies, especially B2B, business-to-business brands, won't do. As a result of that, somehow, a documentary about an employee you don't know joining a company you probably haven't heard of was awesome. Joey Chan is going to join as the uh, content director. She was very determined uh, to, that, that she be seen as someone who would lead the content strategy, not execute the content strategy. So there are a lot, lot, lot of expectations with Joey. She needs to build the old SEO channels pretty much by herself. I mean, when you asked if I want to be in a documentary for 90 days, I thought you were joking. The first mission to achieving my goals, I need to create a blog. We are missing content everywhere. Like, our entire funnel is missing content. Let's not pretend there's a content team, just say my name. The thing is that what's good for Joey is not necessarily good for everybody else. And I start to become like questioning my abilities. Um, I wonder if that would happen to men. The government is shutting down everything. 
uh, we just found that Sester is cancelled, so we have to go back. I'm a bit overwhelmed by people's enthusiasm of the show. Joey? I'm nervous now. It's tiring because I feel like I need to be on at all times. Obviously, I'm a little bit worried uh, that it might not work out. So let's, let's hope I don't get fired. <laughs> So who are you and how do you want to be identified professionally? I am Joey Chen. Uh, I am the director of brand and content at 360 Learning. So my job has actually evolved since I joined the company. When I first came on, um, I was mainly 100% focused on content content. So I was director of content. They were 100% focused on demand gen, generating all the leads, and there was no really organic pipe, organic content, SEO, any of that. So when I joined, I built the blog from scratch and then we started the SEO operations and all that. Um, And then six months into that, you know, when we start to see organic results coming in, I hired more people. And then just uh, last from last quarter, uh, my scope expanded to the content and brand team, which so now it includes also brand design, social media, PR, website, so within that, you know, less than two years, we, we grew like insanely, like every day is different. I want to understand the moment you were told, where were you <laughs> sitting and how did the communication come in? I think I was at home. He probably texted me uh, on WhatsApp and say like, hey, I have this crazy idea. What do you think? I'm going to follow you around every day. We're going to shoot and launch an episode every week for 13 weeks because in France, there's this like three month probation period, which is like, oh, it's very important. Like, because once you pass the probation uh, in French law, it's very difficult to fire people. And, you know, so so that's kind of like a permanent contract thing that is very kind of highly valued. And then I was like, OK, well, sounds kind of crazy. Um, but, you know, why not? He said basically when he pitched the idea, he was like, I was thinking of doing something that, you know, nobody's ever done before. Um, I I have been kind of struggling to find how to show the impact of video as well. Like he's been in the company for a while. He was doing like, you know, all sorts of social videos, like producing a lot, but like not seeing a lot of impact. Maybe a lot of those like how-to videos with like people like, you know, how to do X and Y in five ways. And then, you know, just someone presenting. He done, He's done a ton of those, but just nothing that would really you know, become memorable and the people are actually excited to to keep watching. And he got fed up with that. And he's like, I'm just going to do things my way. If this doesn't work out, I'm going to get fired. It's fine. Um, so completely like, let's do something crazy anyway. Uh, if it doesn't work out, you know, it, I, you know, I'll move on to something else. And How long did you to... stare at that text message before you responded? Yes. <laughs> Not that long. Like I'm, I'm game for, for crazy stuff. <laughs> I mean, like I'm an I'm an expat. I moved from Hong Kong to Paris, like all by myself when I graduated from university, and you know, so I'm all for new experiences and adventures and doing stuff differently. So that that was exciting for me. But you know, and also I feel like okay, maybe you know, five people is gonna watch it. So I mean, if it flops that's a good thing like you know people move on nobody's gonna remember it it's fine like if it fails what was it like when you first walked to wherever you met 
Nicholas, like, what did you see? What greeted you? And then what happened next? So we met at a cafe. Um, he had his iPhone attached to like a stabilizer thing with a little microphone, like a, you know, just a USB microphone or something. So it was like low tech. We, we met at the cafe. He said, okay, so this is what I'm going to use to follow you around. Uh, minimum setup. This is nimble. We can, you know, go everywhere with it. Um, and, and I said, okay, well, and then he just said, okay, well, now walk into the office. I'm going to follow you, you know, <laughs> follow you as you open the door and discover the office space. Physically, like I arrived in the office, um, there wasn't, like, I mean, apart from you, there, there wasn't, like, someone to greet me. And there wasn't um, some place that I need to be. There wasn't a desk that was mine. So that was a bit weird. Like, I just felt like I was crashing into someone else's workplace. And and then I kind of like just squeezed like a little hole where I can sit. What's it like having a camera follow you around like that? I think that it was it was fun up to a point at some points. Some parts of it was fun. Some part of it was was stressful, I think, depending on how I was feeling, what I was dealing with, I think, at work. B- because it's actually like real life. It's not staged. It's not like The Bachelorette or, you know, where people were kind of told what to do or they, you know, fake scenes or stuff. But Did you so know it, when the camera would be on? Like, were you told? Yes. Like, was it on your calendar? You understood ahead of time? Uh, it was just all the time. Uh, at wow. least in, in the beginning, in the beginning, because we, I think that the way he did it was he, he wrote like a, a series Bible. I think he got it from you. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um. So he had a series Bible written. So he kind of made up what he thought was my motivations, potential obstacles, desires. He didn't tell me about it because he didn't want it to affect my real experience or how, what I would say in the interviews. But he used that as a guidance for his planning and, and interview questions. But other than that, he didn't actually know what would happen uh, every day or every week. So he had the camera on whenever he could, whenever we were in the office together. Um, luckily, we're in the same team, so he could join most of the meetings. And so, so yeah, it was uh, it was all the time in the beginning. And it was literally like he would shoot until like every day until Thursday, we'll do an actual sit down interview to recap the week. He would edit in two days and then we published the, the next Monday or Tuesday. I just want to cut in here as voiceover Jay, a guy you only hear from on this show because we have like at least some time to script and prepare this show. The production of Onboarding Joey seems crazy to me. Shooting all week which means hours upon hours of footage, a lot of which you don't use, and then a sit-down interview Thursday. Then Nicholas would edit and ship the following week. That seems unthinkable. Hey, that's the name of the show. But although Joey agrees that the project was crazy, the tight schedule is not the reason why she thinks that. It's so hard for me to say whether it was crazy because of the of the concept of this docuseries or it was crazy because of the events that followed that were very unexpected, which, you know, 
life basically happened and you know covid and you know my family and many you know dramatic things that happened that made the this docuseries much more dramatic we heard that this week um might also be the peak of the crisis we have like an unprecedented number of people infected and i've also got um a lot of friends working in different startups that are firing a lot of people I think now we can't pretend anymore that it's business as usual. And I don't know if it would have been as crazy or people would have resonated with it as much if there yeah. weren't all these like kind of worldwide events or personal events um that happened. Well, what's a piece of it that felt very specific to you? at the time. Well, I mean the the first was the fact that we started shooting for two or three episodes in and we were in New York at that time and then we found out that the city is closing down like uh, the event we were going to attend in San Francisco was canceled because of COVID. Um it was right before, you know, things became crazy. So nobody knew what was going to happen. So we just went back uh to Paris and we don't know if we can continue the show because we were asked to go home and we can't go to the office anymore and that was how Nicholas was following me around to shoot this documentary and if there's no one else like you know no one in the office or you know nothing happening then how are we going to continue the show so so that was like a big question mark and obviously it's a question mark on the show but it was also a question mark on life like on what's happening like nobody knows is this just a a week thing a month thing a year thing like at that point nobody knew how how big it was going to blow up and and that we were going to go into lockdowns or what not like and so so that uncertainty was really captured in that episode following the the announcement of of the covid restrictions and all that i i don't know if we can keep the show running Just sad. This is the funnest part of my job. So, so that I think was very special in the sense that it's crazy. It was unexpected. Um, it's universal, and also it helped me personally um, still feel connected to the world through the docu series because it was like my channel to like you know talk about my feelings and how i you know what i'm going through and then connecting with the audience and viewers who are going through the same thing um and we're all living this together and like watching it and because it's out like in real time almost it's very like whoa like you know yeah this happened and i'm I'm in this exact same situation and how how is she dealing with this how how I'm dealing with this you know so it's very intense and emotionally I feel like you you just said something really profound which was it's how you connected with other people through through being a part of this do you feel like it's also how others watching felt connected Yeah I mean I I cannot speak for other people but I suppose like I did, I don't Did you hear see... from others Yeah, sometimes like I I do get um I mean as a marketer, you know, that sometimes you send out like especially if you're sending out like promotion mass emails and you get like mostly unsubscribe 
immediately you know replies and <laughs> once or twice you get nice ones where it's like oh i really love like the content you're putting out there and so during uh, onboarding joey i do get a lot more of those positive replies people saying like oh i love the show um you know i really feel like you know I'm seeing myself and in the similar situation. And that was mostly more about like the content, building out like a content roadmap and getting pushback on budget and, you know, more on the career side, um, not so much on the COVID side, but like my colleagues, I think they, they expressed that they felt they loved watching it because they can see like the developments uh, the company is making and then they, they see my commentary on it. It's almost like a commentary on their lives sometimes. And, and I like to, you know, speak my mind and I don't have a lot of filter. So, so they will be like, Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. Like, you know, on the CEO, on your boss or whatever. And so that was kind of, I think uh, what people enjoyed. I had to, uh, just to take the blow somehow. She wants to make, uh, to have a strong impact and she wants to have the, the good tool to do it. I mean, she strikes me as the type of person who's not afraid to back down from a tough conversation. So I guess I was okay yeah, with from that. From subdomains to the sub repositories. Finally. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, yeah, it was not fully on it last week. But the thing is that what's good for Joey is not necessarily good for everybody else, in particular for the dev team, for us to be able to be agile and to deploy some new features. I feel like there are more questions after the meeting than answers. Smoke coming out of Joss's head. My challenge is, okay, how do I achieve my own goal and also make other teams happy? Like, how do I make sure that... I would love to know, like, you hinted at something interesting that I felt personally in marketing. Like, I think I've been in content marketing like 15 years now, which is crazy. There are these like certain projects that you remember because you felt differently about the work you did compared to like mm -hmm. previous projects. Like you, you look at it and maybe you figure it out eventually, but sometimes you're just like something was deeper here in the way that mm -hmm. the audience like connected to this. Mm -hmm. But not everyone listening is going to be in marketing. So like, can we just talk through that difference? What were you used to feeling about the work? And then how did this feel? Yeah, um, I would say it's probably the first time I got like emotional responses uh, from the audience, viewers, however we want to to call them. In the past, th there isn't much to be emotional about, to be honest. Like, wow, how how emotional can people react to like a a blog post of like seven ways to do X or you know a webinar about how to build your your content strategy or whatever? Like that, it's it's mostly about work and how to's and you know very tactical stuff and and that's what a lot of the content most b2b companies produce because you know we we are told that that's what what people look for on on google or elsewhere so this is the first time where it's really it's really sharing like a personal experience and a personal story um, without a lot of worry about whether this is actually going to sell anything or that it would help us convert. Um, I mean, no, to be fair, in the beginning, we, we set in an objective to uh, generate some kind of leads. Like we wanted to get MQLs and we tried to get subscribers to the show, but it, it didn't work at all. Like we, we, uh, it was just open. There was no reason for people to subscribe really. I think we got a couple hundred subscribers in the end, but not that like huge or amazing, but like, you know, that people are watching because we see the views and then we also get the responses, qualitative responses. Even today, like 
19 months later, people are, we're still talking about it. Um, our recruiting team still use it to like, you know, approach candidates and hire people. And so it's just the, you know, content impact and ROI is something that cannot really be measured, you know, linear way, like a demand gen paid thing. So just saying that we didn't really worry so much about what am I saying? Are we like um, leading people to the next step or, you know, the typical content uh, content thinking, which is like, okay, now I'm talking about thought leadership awareness stuff and I'm going to lead them to conversion, whatever. Like it was none of that. It, it was very like, what's the story? We wrote it like a story, like a series. Um, we, you know, thought about it like, uh, like, yeah, desire, obstacles, um, person like per, um character evolution so all of those things like you would write like a an actual film or a series and and just worried about how do we make this story interesting like how do we get people coming back and wanting more like how do we create a binge worthy show instead of thinking about is this gonna generate me leads or is it are people gonna should we like show the product a bit or you know like <laughs> can we show a use case here like so there was none of that at all and i think you know people now they're very uh, sensitive to that when you try to you know secretly sell they can sense it immediately from a thousand miles so i think people felt that there wasn't any of that and it was really just pure storytelling and they like that. Yes, it's ultimately a story about starting a new job, not some huge world-changing story. But when you start a new job, that is a huge world-changing story to you. The team at 360 Learning embraced that. They acknowledged that to others. This wasn't a project meant to share some kind of blueprint or tips and tricks or how-tos for starting a new job. Instead, this was the ultimate oh my god, I feel seen kind of project. As a result, this mid-sized company in a massively competitive space stood out. They created an unfair advantage for themselves against bigger players with more resources and endless amounts of competition they faced. And they achieved that precisely because they did not focus on the competition. See, when we pay more attention to the audience than to the industry... The audience pays more attention to us. You said that the reactions you were getting, qualitative reactions, were very emotional. Um, are there any that you remember? So there was a specific one. She contacted me on Twitter. I didn't see the message. And she contacted me again on LinkedIn saying that she basically... Uh, was crying when she was watching the show because she just felt so seen in the way that, you know, I was facing my challenges. Um, and she said, like, I had the exact same experience, uh, pushback from your boss or, you know, getting different opinions on things and you know how she would build a content strategy and and she said like I thought that I was alone and I thought that I was doing a terrible job uh, but watching you in your show and you know how you were talking about it openly made me feel that you know I was not alone and that I can you know deal with it and you know so she said like Thank you, basically, for talking about all these struggles you're going through because it made me feel that it was not me that is kind of sucky at my job. 
I think that the show is incredible. Honestly, like I, I truthfully was very excited about it, but was not expecting it to be something that I looked forward to every single week. I've been looking into the, the analytics for the show. Actually, I was also surprised because the people, they were really, really into it. And even from the very beginning. I'm usually like chatting with people uh, from the company at the same time. So there's always somebody who's like sending, have you seen this week's episode? It's amazing. It's even better than last week. I did a workshop with members of the 360 Learning team and we did a break and everybody was like, did it come out? Did it come out? And they used the whole break to look at the show. I think the show was a success because it was, it was really authentic. She's extremely real and I think also very bold, like the way that she shares everything. I mean, not to mention that onboarding is an extremely stressful experience because you're new, you don't know anything. She's a very direct person, you know, like when, when she says things, it's like she's no fluff, you know, she just goes straight to the point. She wants to succeed in a spectacular way. I could feel a bit of tension and to be honest, I, I tend to dodge the conflict because I hate it. So the relation between Joey and Liam, actually, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit complicated. <laughs> the stakes feel huge in ways that people underestimate, I think, especially in B2B, where it's like, yeah, we're not telling the story of some societal upheaval politically or, you know, Game of Thrones level narratives, perhaps. But to the individual going through it, whatever it mm. is, those stakes feel very, very real and very, very important and mm. fraught with a lot of emotion and meaning. And often they're not addressed. Like you said, it's sort of skirted past by a lot of, especially B2B communicators, business communicators. And if you do then speak up about this, like, hey, I'm going through this, or, or is anyone else? Or, you know, I, am I crazy? Because it feels like this is broken, but no one's talking about it. When you do stuff like that, you speak the unspoken, you tend to get those reactions. Like, I love what you said, like, I feel so seen. And that to me is a yeah. strong signal that you've done something special. But I'm someone who makes narratives for a living. Um, you're surrounded by people at 360 mm -hmm. Learning that clearly greenlit and supported the project, but have different jobs and different metrics that they care about. Is there some kind of business success you can point to that to the skeptic justifies this kind of project? Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to pretend that it was a, an easy sell internally. I think that Nicholas had to make a case uh, for like to to get this project going. And then even while we were doing it, like as the episodes were were aired, there were some pushback from from, you know, fellow 360 learners saying like, oh, are we sure we know what we're doing? Because I think we're showing the company in a bad light. Um, we, we We advocate that, you know, our company culture is uh, so and so, but now we're saying that uh, the managers are being top down or like you're being asked to do things you didn't want to or, you know, so, so they felt that the, you know, how I was, I was being too open, maybe like, you know, should we tone it down? And so, so I've got some pushback. And then, well, myself and Nicholas, we have to kind of explain again, the rationale of why we're doing this project, which was to show our culture in a transparent way. And transparency is one of our values. So even though they feel like, oh, we're not showing our values. Well, there we have 13 different values. So there's like, you know, impact, high accountability, you own your scope and your life, your way and all this and transparency, one of them. So they're like, oh, but it doesn't show that we are like, you know, you can't own your scope because your boss tells you what to do and stuff. And I said, but transparency is also a very important value. And we cannot get more transparent than that. Like we show when things are not going the way yeah. that it's supposed to be in an ideal situation. 
I'm still figuring out like you know what it means to own the scope and own the budget and like like how do I justify what's the process um, so I, I think we're, we're in that right now and I hope that it is within my control control is not a good word but like I hope it's within my no it's control <laughs> uh, control to make sure that you know I get the money that I get the budget that was promised at the beginning of the week, basically, like uh, Joey uh, came to me and asked for uh, for a meeting, and she basically wanted to to spend like quite a lot of money uh, to work with like a specific agency. Um, they said that oh, but shouldn't you be doing that? Uh, or like, then we hire you to do this. <laughs> you cannot count on uh, external people uh, to solve like uh, internal problems. It's sure it's part of your job. It's part of your responsibility to really like crack that and, and, and solve this. Uh, Liam said like, is it not possible or is it just hard? Um, and then it made me feel like he thinks that I don't want to do the job uh, or I don't want to <laughs> put in the work. Uh, so that, that annoyed me a little bit. You're telling the truth and I feel like yeah. people appreciate people who tell the truth. But moreover, yes. <laughs> an organization that understands we're not foolish we know we have problems yeah we know what they are and we're committed to fixing them and wouldn't you want rather work with an organization like that than one mm. that like you know holds their hands over their eyes and plugs exactly. their ears and goes la 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 yeah. we don't have any problems <laughs> buy from us we're perfect yeah exactly so that's that's kind of our main argument saying like it's much more appealing actually to people to show that we are we're a company that it's okay that, you know, we're not perfect. Nobody is. And if we pretend that we are and produce like a glossy uh, version of reality, it's going to be even more off-putting. And I mean, luckily our CEO is also like provocative and he's very into, you know, communicating in a different way. So he was all, you know, we had his full support. So that helps a lot. Uh, and in terms of like more business related metrics, so um, onboarding joy was the most visited web page for like all time for our organic uh, traffic. So that was a big, like, you know, kind of win to sell like, and keep the project going up into season two. And so that was a big thing saying like, well, it's driving traffic. People are eating it up and they love it. And, you know, and then um, on the recruitment side, you know, there were, I think I had to starting to recruit, like I started to recruit my own team I think nine months into, yeah, about like nine months into the job and everybody I interviewed said like, I watched Onboarding Joey and I feel like I know you and, you know, I, I'm interested to work for this company. So obviously, I mean, probably biased because like I'm the interviewer, so they would tell me that, but like even the recruiters told us that, you know, people say that and now they're using it as, as a way to recruit people. So there's also that, um, you know, kind of advantage or like positive impact outcome that was kind of unexpected. I'm a bit overwhelmed by people's enthusiasm of the show. Like in the beginning, when you, when you told me your idea, I was like, who's going to be interested to watch that? Um, and the answer is, a lot of people. So basically, uh, what happened last week is that we got a big surge of traffic. Uh, I guess the, the, the responsible for this is the onboarding to a show. Just so organic US and Canada traffic. This is just US organic and Canada traffic, yes. Yeah. Um, and then externally, there are like, you know, friends I've not spoken to in a long time messaging me on LinkedIn and say, hey, I love your documentary. Hello. Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm meeting a celebrity. <laughs> hey, 
But at the same time, obviously, it also puts pressure because in the beginning, you're like, oh, maybe 20 people will see it. And then it's like, no, we got what, like 10,000 views already on the first episode. What makes something feel like, oh, wow, that's my favorite? It's not just that it's relevant or enjoyable. Instead, it feels somehow personal. Our favorite things are acts of self-expressing. We're expressing our identity. We start to conflate our own sense of self with that thing. That could be your favorite t-shirt, your favorite song or album, or sure, your favorite app that you love using at work. But the result of encountering something that just resonates, it just hits home, it hits you deeply where you live. The result is something we've already mentioned several times here, is that we say stuff like, I feel so seen. You're saying that you, the person, were not being acknowledged or recognized previously. And now you are. You felt hidden or ignored or without voice or agency or just lacked the catharsis of feeling connected to others who felt or operated like you do. But no longer, this thing that you've encountered, this person, this brand, this project, this group, helped you feel seen. Joey, Nicholas, and to their credit, the team around them were willing to showcase current issues, and even though that exposes the brand as less than perfect, it helped that brand align more deeply with their very human, of course less than perfect, customers. As a result, those people felt profoundly seen. What's in the final cut that you think is very revealing and and a little bit vulnerable that some companies may not have been comfortable sharing? Like, what are those moments that come to mind? Um, I think it's when I was confronting my boss like, or my coach, that's what we call them. So yeah, I think moments where I, where I clearly showed there are like tension and conflicts between me and my coach. In this next clip, you're going to hear Joey speaking to camera. You're going to hear some of her interview tape. And in that tape, she's describing a moment of conflict between her and her coach, which is what they call the managers at 360 Learning. She first gives us a little bit of context about a meeting where the clip takes place. And then you actually hear clips from that meeting. And what you hear is a pretty snippy exchange between Joey and her manager. This week we had a marketing alignment meeting with the whole marketing team, with the CEO. Um, it was like a two-hour meeting, which is very unusual for us because we are like very not pro meetings. The way the discussion went makes it feel like, you know, there are a lot of bottlenecks and a lot of it is content. I think you're still... Let's not pretend there's a content team. Just say my name. (laughs) (laughs) Please, Joey. You haven't even finished your homework. It's still me. (laughs) Did you catch that? This is such a crucial moment. I want to make sure. Joey's boss was basically discussing the progress of what he called the content team. And Joey cut him off and said, somewhat playfully, somewhat angrily... Let's not pretend there's a content team. Just say my name. To which the boss replied, Please, Joey, you haven't even finished your homework. It's still me. (laughs) I asked Joey why she felt the way she did in that moment and decided to speak up. So when I joined, before I agreed to, before I accepted the offer, I asked explicitly how much budget I would have 
to create content because I know that it was just a one woman show and the budget is highly, it's going to basically determine how, what are the things I could do. I've worked in companies where we have no budget and we have to bootstrap and do everything by ourselves. But I was just hoping that this company is different and, and uh, we have money to do cool stuff. And I was told that I would have 100K. And I was like, okay, well, then I have 100K. And then so that's what I used to kind of plan out my content plan and strategy. And so I wanted to hire this content agency that was highly recommended uh, within the industry. And then I got pushback. Well, at the beginning of the week, basically, like, uh, Joey uh, came to me and asked for, uh, for a meeting. And she basically wanted to, to spend like, quite a lot of money uh, to work with like, a specific agency. And saying, you know, things like, you know, but I thought that these are things that you were going to do. And I'm like, no, I have to handle the strategy. And then they're like, it's almost like there was a question about how, how much, you know, I was supposed to do. Count on uh, external people uh, to solve like uh, internal problems. It's, your, it's part of your job. It's part of your responsibility to really like crack that and, and, and solve this. Uh, Liam said like, is it not possible or is it just hard um, and then made me feel like he thinks that I don't want to do the job yeah so so in the end I, I got frustrated because I was like why is there so much pushback like um, and then they started to ask me questions about well he started to ask me questions about like um, are you scared about something and then I, I th like I don't know I just felt like he probably read a book about how to have difficult conversations and then he tried to like just um, use that in a way like and I just felt like this is not the kind of conversation uh, someone would have with a dude like with a guy what are you afraid of like or, or are you worried that you, you can't do it and I start to become like questioning my abilities uh, which uh, yeah I wonder if that would happen to men I think I actually looked annoyed and <laughs> In, in that footage that Nicholas put together. I mean, kudos to Nicholas for putting all of that together and not like, you know, thinking we needed to round, you know, round the edges or anything. And then that's what makes a story, right? That the yeah. moments of tension, if you don't have tension, you don't have a story. And that's what plagues, not to keep beating this horse, but that's what plagues a lot of B2B content. There's, there's yeah. no stake. No there tension. is no, yeah, I mean, there is no story in most things. Like how, what, what kind of story is in a how-to listicle? It probably created tension between me and my manager even more because he sees how I'm kind of reacting to him on camera and then everybody sees and then, you know, Unfortunately, in a series, there's like a protagonist, there's an antagonist, and you know we kind of put him in the antagonist position. Uh, she's she's passionate, um, very demanding. Uh, she can be uh, unorganized or, or, or sporadic. I, I think she's really afraid to fail. And so, yeah, I didn't I didn't necessarily expect that to come out of of thinking about what my perception of Joey is, but. Those are how I would describe myself. Um, we're both immigrants. We're both very far away from family. 
We both uh, are very creative, driven, inspired by great storytellers. We're both passionate about our professional careers. And we're both generally solo people. Which in the beginning, of course, like Nicholas has have talked to him and say like, hey, we, we're maybe going this direction. Are you okay? And he was like, okay, yeah, sure. I will be the bad guy. I, th- I think that put me in a, in a sometimes difficult situation with with my manager. And then, mm-hmm. of course, like, you know, big picture is I started this job like, you know, a few weeks in and everybody's watching now and I don't know how it's going to go. Like, you know, whether my work is going to be good enough or good to keep my job or to show people and and all that so so there's always that pressure at the back of my mind that you know oh my god the world's watching if i fail then you know it'd be really great if joey could ask for help one of the hardest things that you do when you put yourself as a as a solo person uh i mean one of the things that would make joey a superstar in this company she would blow through so much stuff with her passion, with her energy, with her enthusiasm, with her attention to detail, with her vision for the type of content that she wants to create. If she just asks for help in areas and is okay with not being an expert and okay with the fact that she's going to have to get further with, with other people, it's such a huge, huge quality. In Onboarding Joey, you watch as a real person goes through a real challenge, facing a lot of its viewers, maybe even you. Starting a new job, learning the ropes, training, getting up to speed, trying to contribute, expectations and assumptions meeting reality. But none of that works unless what you capture approximates reality. Brands have a really tough time with that in particular. For Onboarding Joey to work, Joey would step into the role of a customer persona in a sense. As a new employee who was being trained herself, she was basically a proxy for 360 Learning's customers. Those customers buy their software to train employees. But Joey couldn't become or portray a flat, sort of fictional person. 360 Learning couldn't remove all the messiness of being a new hire, all the fraught, emotional things you experience as a person. That stuff had to make it into the final cut. Otherwise, this thing does not work. This project falls flat. It doesn't resonate. It's not irreplaceable. Nobody would miss it if it was gone. Now, this story captured a real person going through real challenges that 360 Learning's customers also experience. But it had to feel real to resonate. And real is messy, uncertain, vulnerable. It's not a nice, neat marketing message or story polished to perfection. Now, you might be nodding along with the words I'm saying here, but just imagine being Joey and having to put that much of your real life on camera. There was some vulnerable material that made it into the final cut involving your family. Um, Can you just talk a little bit more about that and how it felt? Yeah, so that was um, completely unexpected and and very um, personal. So halfway through the series, when we were in lockdown, um, I found that my grandmother, who was in Hong Kong, went into the hospital, and then she actually passed away overnight. Like I found out in the morning, I got like a ton of 
missed calls when I woke up and then basically it was like everybody gathered around her in the hospital and and then I found out that she she passed away basically like that. That day we had to to still do the daily check-ins with Nicholas because that's what we were doing when we were remote. Um, he would call me every day to do a FaceTime interview. So he asked me if I still wanted to do it and like if I wanted to pause or even like, you know, stop the show, or whatever, do I still feel up to it? And then I thought like, well, I'm just going to share it. We'll see if we're going to use it in the end. So I just, you know, said this happened. So much is happening outside, like um, stuff with my family. Uh, everybody's being locked down and I feel like I'm in this bubble where there's this outside world and, and, and the problems that we're trying to solve internally don't seem like real problems, actually. And then, you know, I thought that this is probably not just happening to me. Like a lot of other people might be going through the exact same thing during that time in COVID. Lost like their loved ones and not able to say goodbye. And and also, since we're documenting my journey, this is a part of it. And and uh, so we decided to just include it. And 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 then so people, um, yeah, I've got a few messages from that too, saying. You know, they, they were going through the same thing and yeah. The story of the show is, of course, the story of, you know, season one, you being onboarded, season two, your role evolving and you, you know, looking to hire people and, and things like that. But to me, there's something deeper here, which is, you're kind of saying to the world, not just like, here's what this looks like and maybe you learn a thing or two, but like, A, what we're doing, what you're doing, the viewer, in these jobs matters, and B, you're not alone. Like, we see you. And to me, this is like one of the most ultimate help them feel seen projects that I've ever experienced from a brand. Is that why people connected to this? Like, as we're exploring this idea of resonance, it's a really nebulous idea. We're trying to put some form to it. Why do you think this resonated with folks? Um, I don't think that when we were constructing it, I mean, when Nicholas was constructing, I was just playing along. We really, like, specifically thought, okay, what would resonate with people? Or, like, you know, will this make people feel seen? We were more focused on telling like a real story, like what happened, what is the being authentic and just, you know, sharing my whole self basically. And I think that it just naturally became like kind of relatable because people can see that, you know, I'm a human being like them. And, <laughs> you know, it kind of also changed the way I, present myself in the workplace. Uh, obviously, I mean, through the show, I had to because I was basically showing my my personal life out to the world. And but I like now with my team, I like I would always be very transparent about how I'm feeling. And, you know, things I don't agree with or don't feel great about. And that creates bonds that I think I wouldn't be able to if I hadn't been as transparent and kind of open about 
how I actually feel about things. Uh, sometimes I think, especially for managers, they like feel like they have to kind of put up a front on like, you know, they know everything and they, we, we have everything under control and, you know, you, you don't, you know, <laughs> you don't, uh, you know, do things like, well, yeah. So I feel like you have to put up like kind of a, fa- like a facade almost. And I just stopped doing that. In our race to grow, we tend to look longingly at the biggest competitors or the individuals we admire that have achieved some kind of fame. We dream of being the biggest too, of being declared by others to be the best. But that's not what people choose, not really. What causes someone to feel this emotional pull towards us, this irrational bias in our favor, is that we appeal to their sense of identity, to their very nature as people. That is what we do with our work when we resonate with others. We spark this urge to act, not because we're the biggest or the best, but because we are so deeply aligned with who they are as people, their emotional, personal nature. To do that is to treat others as whole people rather than treat them as flat avatars or personas. As a result, they might say to us, yes, you are speaking to my soul. You get it. You get me. I feel seen. And when we do that, our work starts to feel irreplaceable to them. It doesn't matter if we're the biggest, top ranked, the best resourced. We resonate deepest. So we become their personal preferred pick for a specific purpose in their lives or their work. Don't be the biggest. Don't be the best. Be their favorite. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to become a more effective storyteller in your work, if you want to create content that resonates with others and helps them feel seen, consider two different projects of mine on offer. First, there's my free newsletter. Every other week, I share an idea or a framework to help you create more original content more consistently so you can bridge that gap between trying to be bigger and trying to be the best and actually being their favorite. The newsletter is called Playing Favorites, and I send it to thousands of creative entrepreneurs, executives, and marketers every other Friday. Subscribe at jayakunzo.com or check your show notes for a link. You can also consider joining our mastermind, The Creator Kitchen. It's a membership offering community and education focused on the craft of creating higher value, more original content. It's a place to wrestle with your ideas, your drafts, and your existential creator crises together with me directly, my co-founder Melanie, and our wonderful members. Learn more about membership at creatorkitchen.com or once again, you can check your show notes. I'm back in two weeks, but until then, keep making what matters. See ya.